How'd you like to be highly successful at your job, have a wonderful family, build a business, and be dedicated to many causes that are important to you in the community? Well, our guest today, Katie Fang, is all of those things and more. That's right, she's even a media personality. You'll probably recognize her from NBC, all the networks of NBC, and prior to that, the networks of Fox. She comments on all things in the news related to legal issues. She helps her clients with criminal and civil litigation matters as well as media relations. She's an entrepreneur, a mother, and she's dedicated to helping with issues in the community that are critical to bringing all of us together. And that's the main reason why. I wanted to talk to Katie today. You see, each week this year on the Inside BS Show, we're going to dedicate one session to talking about diversity and improving our understanding of people who look and have a background that may be a little different from us. So today on the Inside BS Show, we're going to talk to Katie Fang about how she built her business, and we're also going to talk to her about her experience within the practice of law and in growing a business in the community. We're going to connect with her and have a conversation, a frank, candid dialogue about how we can all get to know one another better and become more in tune with the people who we live with and the people we work with in our community. Please join me in welcoming to the Inside BS Show, Katie Fang. Hey, Katie, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is, uh, this is a pleasure. It's, it's been long overdue, so thanks for actually having me today, Dave. I appreciate it. No, the, the honor is mine, and I want to help folks understand really the, uh, the level of complexity that is the life of Katie Fang. So walk us through. I don't think I did you justice in that in that introduction. So take us through a day in the I life. I was so intrigued at the beginning. I'm like, who's going to be on the show? That sounds so amazing. And then it was like me. I'm like, oh, I would be like, wait, wait, time out. Get my husband in here so he can hear that. Because he needs to be reminded that he married up. So so let's bring him in here so you can hear that intro again. Take us through, take us through a day in the life of Katie Fang. What, how does, how does your, especially in a pandemic, right? Cause as we record this, this interview is going to come out the end of January, 2021. We're recording it, recording it probably a week in advance. Uh, take us through a day in the life of Katie Fang. What is it? What do you, what does your average day look like? Well, you know, it's funny. We always, my husband and I do say that even my mom, that we could, uh, we could have a reality show, microcosm reality show of our life. Like, uh, just in a day here. I mean, in the most literal of senses, I feel like that's a great question, Dave, for, for me to answer because there's a certain glamour that people associate or attach to the idea that you're on TV. And my, listen, I'm a full-time lawyer, but it takes a backseat to being a full-time mom. So I have a six-year-old daughter named Charlotte. We call her Charlie. Um, a lot of people know her as the quote, original Princess Charlotte because uh, King uh, Prince William and, and, and Kate had their Charlotte after we did, so we jokingly call her the original Princess Charlotte. But literally, I roll out of bed like 5.45 to make sure that my daughter, who does go to school during the pandemic, she's in a brick and mortar in-person uh, learning environment, that she has her lunch prepared, which I do, I make her breakfast, then I have to make sure that she's um, dressed in her uniform, everything's packed up, ready to go. Is it a day that she has an after-school enrichment thing with a tutor that 
has a, so she needs her computer. Do I have that packed? Do I have all the, the laptop cords and everything? And then is she brush her teeth, wash her face, make sure she's dressed, ready to go to school. And then I got to get her to school. A lot of the times my husband chips in and he's able to take her, but a lot of times he can't. And so I have to get her to school and get her there and then walk her to the gate and make sure I get home and get ready for court. And with court these days, it's all done via Zoom. And so, you know, it's uh, business on the top and party on the bottom, right? So you don't really know what's going on uh, when you're on Zoom, but it's trying to tackle all of that. And luckily I have help from my mom who picks her up in the afternoon and spends some time with her in the afternoon, but it's trying to get all that done and then manage clients and court and cases and business development and, you know, maybe catching up on, on something, you know, it's just, it's a little bit of a zoo and the pandemic, I thought at the beginning slowed things down a little bit. I kind of felt like I was able to take a breath then maybe partway through 2020 things just like amped up again. And it's been, breakneck speed since then. You know, I first met you uh, through Mount Sinai, the Medical Center Foundation. Uh, God, it's got to be 10, 12 years ago. Years and ago. yeah, and you you have always been somebody who has been uh, a high achiever. I mean, uh, over the, I've watched you in your career over the past decade. And you're always moving, you're always on the go. How do you what's the time you take for yourself? Do you have any time for yourself? No, and I'll be 46 this year, shockingly. I'll be 46 this year. I've always said every year, because I do New Year's resolutions. Every single year, I'll do New Year's resolutions, um, some of which are totally not achievable, like exercise more. <laughs> um, some of which are, which is maybe drink less coffee as I chug my coffee with you right now. Um, but one of my top ones has always been try to carve out more time for myself. And again, the pandemic forced me to slow down in an artificial of senses because before the pandemic really kicked in in March of last year, I was traveling every two weeks, shuttling between Miami and New York. So it was um, me flying out on a Thursday or a Friday, coming back late Sunday, um, and then working remotely from New York when I was there. Um, it was just a lot. And I was always trying to find something that would give me a sense of, I don't know, not because I'm not a meditation person. I'm not a yoga person. Um, Pilates was one thing I was doing, but then that stopped obviously last year. And even then with my travel schedule and my work schedule, it was hard. I don't really find time to do stuff for myself. So I'm trying really hard to, but um, before you know it, and I know you can completely um, empathize with this, Dave, it's like 10 o'clock at night, right? It's nine something at night and I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's like, I just need to get through maybe a little bit more work or maybe I wanna put my daughter to sleep earlier and I've fallen asleep. So it is not unusual for me to do work from like 11 p.m. at night to 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Because I'll put her to bed and I'll fall asleep and then I'll wake up in a start and I'll be like, oh my God, I have something I gotta get to and then I'll work and then I'll be exhausted and I'll go back to sleep. So I really, there's no time. There's no time in the day to, to do stuff for myself. Not only not only do, do the days pass by, uh, just as you outlined, but the years pass by. I mean, I turned around the other day and my son was 12 and my daughter is 10. And I'm like, where, how did that happen? Like, where, where where was I? What was I? And I was here. I've, I've designed my business around my lifestyle. I participate in everything, yet I feel like it just, it, it just goes by so fast. What, um, when you made the decision 
to go back into practice for yourself. You were, you're successful. You were at a large firm. You were successful at the large firm. You made the decision to go back into practice for yourself. What was your thought process like? How did you, how did you come to that decision? And what's it been like since you, since you've been on your own again? So it, it wasn't a decision I took lightly because I, like you said, I was at a large platform firm and it was great. It was, it was a deep bench with a variety of areas of law. So it was an internal referral system that was going on and, and everything was going to be like one stop shopped if you were a client and you had multiple needs. But my dad died. My dad passed away Father's Day uh, 2019 after a multi-year battle with Alzheimer's and Lewy body dementia. Mm. And we were blessed because he was in hospice only for a few weeks before he died. But it was his passing away um, and it was kind of the the emotional wreckage that happened thereafter um, you know and again other having to take care when you're the person that does everything everybody expects you to take care of everything and i didn't want my mom to have to worry about it and i have a very dysfunctional relationship with an older brother and so who just hasn't been there for the family and so i consider myself to be a sandwich generation i have a a daughter who will be seven this year and my dad was 87 when he died mm. so I, I was taking care of an elderly parent and i have a small child but plan, having to bury my dad and do the funeral and, and the memorial service as i got up and i delivered his eulogy on two occasions one um, right before we buried him and a week or two later at his church um, when i did his memorial service for those who couldn't attend the burial um I told the story of my dad and the story of my dad is remarkable. My father came to this country from Seoul at the age of 19 with $2 and 43 cents in his pocket. That's it. And a Korean English dictionary, a couple pairs of clean underwear. He had no friends and no family in the United States. He hitched a ride in an army GI transport, went all the way through Japan, landed in eventually Seattle Tacoma International Airport in Seattle, Washington. And then he worked his way digging ditches um, and supporting himself um, through undergrad, grad school, and eventually got a PhD in engineering from RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic. And this is a guy who could barely speak English when he came to the United States. My mom had less of a, I guess, you know, struggle, but also came to the U.S. She came to the U.S. when she was 21, 22. She already had a nursing degree, so she was able to go work as a nurse in New York, but she also didn't have any friends or family when she came to the United States. So both my parents, but more specifically my dad, they are the American dream. And so when I stood there and I delivered these eulogies and I told the story of my father and the lives that he touched being a professor and teaching and, and the change that he made. And my dad was the kind of man who never came home and said, hey, Katie, let me tell you about all the people I helped today. So when he died and all these people came out of the woodwork to tell me about how he had changed their lives in monumental ways, I was humbled. And I said to myself, what is your excuse for not doing it again. Cause I had been with two other partners before I was at this large firm and that was for fleeting. That was only for maybe about three years, but I was like, you don't need someone to do this. If, if dad, my dad was able to do it at that young age with literally no money and no friends and family, what's your excuse, Katie? You've got a supportive husband who has a good job as a lawyer as well. You've got great friends, family, a wonderful network. What's your excuse? And I think that 
you know, in the tragedy and kind of, like I said, the emotional wreckage of losing my dad, I said, you know what, I have enough cojones to do this. Like I can do this. This is what I've been working for. So I went back and I gave notice and started my own firm account. And how do you, when you get up in the morning, I, I want to, first of all, your dad is the, is the, um, the classic American story, in my opinion. I think that that is, that, that is your, your dad's story sums up what's great about America. There's no place else on earth where you can show up with 243 and a couple of pairs of clean underwear, get a PhD and, you know, have a, a fantastic life. So I want to, I want to talk, I want to talk about that. Um, I mean, that's, that's really, I think the, the crux of what I want to get into, but I want people to really understand the, you know, your, your journey to becoming an entrepreneur once again, cause you had a taste of it early, early on, you really left the, the cozy, the cozy confines, knowing you're a Cubs fan, you left the cozy confines of a, of a law firm, right? It's nice. It's, yeah. you know, you go there every day, you know, your partner's. Uh, if you can't find your own work, your partners will find work for you. Or you also know that if you bring in a dozen cases, you can you can hand them off to other people and go find another five or six cases. And it's all going to be taken care of. At the end of the day, you know, somebody handles, you know, getting the printer to work. Somebody handles making sure that there's toilet paper in the restroom, right? Exactly. You went from that into, all right, listen, not only do you have to practice law, but you have to figure out how to get the people who you work with paid. You have to figure out how to get yourself paid, make sure there's money to pay everybody. And you also got to figure out the hundred other things from, you know, keeping the copier full of toner to everything else. Right. But your motivation was so, was so strong. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the things that is lacking from people when they, when they decide to go out on their own, there's two reasons people go out on their own. First, is that they're that they're driven as you were to do something more. The second reason is that they're unemployable, right? And what people find what people find out is the more you do things on your own, the more unemployable you become <laughs> because you realize you're surrounded by knuckleheads. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the latter the latter term unemployable sounds like it's got a negative connotation, right? The second somebody says that you kind of cringe. It's like cringeworthy, right? But the reality is um, my husband figured this out years before I did, which is I am unemployable. Right. I'm, I'm, I just, and it's not because I don't know how to be obedient. Um, although again, my husband will probably tell you, I don't know. Um, I, it's not because I don't know where my place is and how to um, be moderately um, subservient, right? I, I know how to play the game, Dave. It's just, I got to the point where again, because of how I felt, how fleeting life is to some extent, right? I don't need friction in my life that is created because of my employment situation. And I loved the people I worked with. I enjoyed being there. But the friction that would arise always was the collision between me, my autonomy, my ability to manage the cases at a pace and a fee and at a tone and a tempo that I wanted to do with my clients colliding with the administrative bureaucracy, which is a larger firm. And so initially it made sense. And then after about five years, it didn't make sense because the trade-off wasn't there anymore for me. That cost benefit analysis didn't make sense for me. I was just better off going out and being able to manage and service clients on my own. And again, under the parameters defined by what I thought made sense for me. I'll give you a perfect example. 
I haven't changed my 2021 rates from 2020. That frankly didn't change from 2019 when I went out on my own. Um, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. But I had a woman call me the other day, 62 years old, married for 35 years, and desperately in need of a lawyer. I took my rate, I slashed it in half. I took my retainer and I cut it to a quarter. I was very blunt. I told her what I was, you know, I told her she was getting a, a benefit, uh, and, but I did tell her too. I said, listen, this is not going to be an easy litigation ride. We're going to have to make some hard decisions because you don't have the financial wherewithal to really finance heavy duty litigation. But it meant something to me to help this woman. She reminded me of my mom. She reminded me of other people's moms. It meant something to me to help this woman. And after practicing for as long as I had, there was no way I could have ever have done that in a traditional law firm environment. It never would have been approved. And let's be blunt, when I was at my old law firm, there's a lot of stuff I did that was never going to be approved, but I did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, the collision of me saying, this is who I am, this is what I wanna do, and trying to be respectful of a structure that was necessary, you have to have necessary infrastructure at an entity that large. If not, it's total chaos. I, I felt like that friction wasn't literally worth it anymore. It wasn't worth the paycheck. It was better. I was better off doing it on my own, taking a distribution, you know, doing what I felt was more important. So that's why I left and, and continue to do what I do, which is be my own boss. I think anybody that's ever spent 15 minutes with you or that, that thumbs through your bio could have told you that you, you, you can't work in an environment where you're not in charge. You, you need to be years ago, then <laughs> you, you need to be, you need to be in charge. You, you need to be in charge of the firm. You need to be in charge of the case. You, and the reason is because I get the impression from you, correct me if I'm wrong. You have a high sense of responsibility. Uh, there may be like a little perfectionist streak in there too, but you're also extremely competitive. So yeah. there's, there's no client that's going to be in better hands than in the hands of somebody like you who's responsible, competitive, and wants to do the absolute best job possible. So, you know, the people who work for you in your firm are going to be in good hands too because they know that you're not going to, you're, you're going to be relentless. So you're not going to let up until you have the success that you, that you really want. I mean, is that fair? Yeah, and, and I'm incredibly, I, I, I reward loyalty because that's high value in my opinion, right? Competency is clearly, I think, the nominal standard people should have to be able to work in any type of specialized profession. But loyalty goes really far. And, you know, I took uh, my legal assistant with me from my old firm, who I had actually known even prior to that um, that last firm, because she's amazingly loyal and she's um, she's so good that I know that if I'm not physically in the office, like last week, I worked from the office one day. The rest of the days I worked from home um, and the rest of my staff, you know, they're they're welcome to work from home if they want to, because I don't micromanage. But they do know, though, I grew up old school, though, in the legal profession. I build the 2400, 2500 hours a year kind of thing. Right. So they know even if they're not working from the office, they still have to have a certain responsive time um, that's quick and the work still has to be done. Um, but I think it's important to surround yourself with people that are loyal, competent, trustworthy, um, that understand that the goal is to all thrive together collectively. But I'm not there to just bill and I'm not there to bill and to collect so that I can qualify for a bonus at the end of the year that merits my existence or justifies my existence. So those types of things are great to not have the shackles 
of that type of responsibility anymore. Plus, I also detected a note of complacency in my life by that point in time. <laughs> it is very easy to fall into a sense of, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm originating, I'm generating work, I'm getting work from other people, but then you kind of like, you, you kind of lose the chispa, you kind of lose that spark, right? You're like, what am I doing this for? Um, and, and so I think it's important to kind of find that spark, whatever it is. Now I sound like Marie Kondo, but I, there's a reason why you don't look at the rest of my plays because it's so messy. So <laughs> the, the re, what you find, what you would consider complacency, I think would exhaust most people. So I think that's, I think it's important to put that out there. I'm sure everyone's going to uh, want to know about the whole TV thing, right? So let's yeah. let's pull back pull back the curtain. Talk about how you now you did you did a lot of local TV or some local TV before yeah. you you went to work with Greta on Fox. Tell us about yeah. uh, tell us about how you got into that, and then talk about what that's done if it's done anything for your practice, and you know how you how you kind of fit it into everything else you got going on. So start at the beginning. How did you get into TV to begin sure. with? So um, I started I started my career at the state attorney's office in, in August of 2000. And what was great is in the early 2000s, um, especially in government practice, um, if you it really was a merit based um, concept. If you worked really hard and, and you and you put in the hours, you would move up really quickly. So after um, a few years, I was trying some very serious cases. And when I hit 2005, um, 2004, 2005, I was trying death penalty cases um, and handling um, capital felonies and a division chief running a, an entire courtroom. And a local CBS, the local CBS affiliate, a very popular reporter who had been at the local Fox affiliate who was then at CBS, he was on the courthouse beat. So he was always in the courthouse kind of covering all the crazy cases that you know that we have here in Miami. And he approached me and said, look, the Michael Jackson trial, his second pedophilia trial was going to have coverage. And they wanted to know if I wanted to do like a point counterpoint show um, in the morning to kind of go over what had happened in the Michael Jackson trial the day before and what did we expect that day with a local criminal defense lawyer named Mark Eiglarsh, who had also done um, some TV as well. So I went and I did that and it took off and I was doing a lot of coverage for the local CBS affiliate and doing some CBS national stuff. And then I had a fork in my career in terms of an opportunity. I loved doing the TV. So the news director at the CBS affiliate here in Miami, which, by the way, is a coveted place. Miami is a coveted market. A lot of very famous names in TV, Katie Couric, Al Roker, stuff like that. They've all come through um, Miami. Um, she asked me if I was interested in being a general assignment reporter for the station. And I, I was stunned because I had never gone to broadcast journalism school. I never thought I was going to be a TV reporter. And I said, look, I, I have a preference. I went to law school. I am massively in debt. I have been doing public service work as a prosecutor for the last five years. Would you contemplate letting me do courthouse coverage? I would do Dade Broward and Palm Beach. I'd cover all the major cases, any type of you know local coverage of national cases as well. And she said, look, Katie, I am in dire need of a general assignment reporter. And I struggled hard. Mind you, I wasn't making a lot of money at the time. So it really wasn't the money. I could find health insurance. I mean, I wasn't going to get health insurance doing this with these people. But I was like, you know what, this could be really cool. Like this could be a life altering opportunity for me. But I but I thought, you know what, I don't want to cover a Hialeah house fire at four o'clock in the morning, cat in the tree, right? 
And I'd gone to law school and I had tried serious cases to be a trial lawyer. And so I declined that job and I went into private practice to be a civil litigator. And over the years, I got calls to do some TV stuff. But then a couple years later, I got a call from my friend who had actually worked with me as a producer in the CBS affiliate in Miami. He had gone national. He had gone to Fox. And he called me and he was the executive producer for Greta Van Susteren's show at the time on the record. And he said, look, we do a legal panel almost every single day. We'd love for you to sub in. Could you sub in? And I said, sure. Did it. Loved it. I even remember what the, the hit was about. It was about um, kids that were lighting themselves on fire in bathtubs and recording themselves. And whether there was liability on the part of the parents when they were video recording their kids lighting themselves on fire in bathtubs to extinguish themselves. Gee, um, you think? <laughs> yeah, no, right? Go figure. Or whether people should be arrested for stuff like that. But then um, he called me the next day. He said, look, Greta loved you. We had a great time. Could you come back to today? And I said, sure. And I literally started being on every single day. And, you know, Dave, uh, opportunity, right, is all in the timing sometimes. Greta was sandwiched between Brett Baer and Bill O'Reilly at the time. She was a seven o'clock primetime slot on one of the top, if not top, cable news networks at the time. I literally walked myself into a primetime show. And so I did it for a number of years. And then in December of 2016, Greta left. Uh, Megan Kelly left and I left. We all left Fox and we all went to MSNBC, NBC. Neither Greta nor Megan are at the network anymore. I'm still there. I just re-upped for another year with them. And I'm also going to be doing some stuff for CNBC this year um, as a result of the work I've been doing. But that's kind of my story. And, and it's interesting because a lot of the people that I met down here in Miami, they went national. They went to ABC News. They went to Fox. They went to NBC. And over the years, I get calls from them asking, hey, can you explain this legal concept to me? Or, hey, I've got this going on. What do you think about it? And with no expectation of being in front of a camera, I would help people. I'd say, hey, look, let's pull the docket together. Let's look at the discovery. Let's look at this issue. Have your, have your bookers or have your producers thought about this? And, and eventually these people, you know, they rose up in the food chain and they ended up being, you know, top bookers and or EPs, executive producers. And I think that's the reason why um, I stayed top of mind. But I also think just the generosity of just being kind and patient and giving your time to people with no expectation of getting something back, I think moves the needle. Um, I think you, if you ask any of your, your listeners to, to, think back to somebody who's been kind to them, I think they'll remember, even if it was years before. And I, I'm, I'm, I've never even asked how it ended up being, but I just kind of feel like maybe that was a large part of it. Sure, I, I tell clients all the time that if you're, if you're interested in the media, doing the work on background is not only step one, but it's the way, you gotta develop relationships. So yeah. it's just like building a business. Right. You have to have an external orientation. You have to deliver value first. And when people see you selflessly delivering value, that's going to come back to you tenfold. And it may not come back to you in the way that you that you give it out. But what's going on behind the scenes is something you'll never know. People are saying, that Katie Fang, she's great. You know, she helped me with this and she she walked me through this, this and this. I wish I had a spot for her on the show because, you know, she's really helped me understand these legal concepts. That chatter behind the scenes happens every single day between people, even across networks, and that pays off down the road. So the external orientation aspect of it is absolutely huge. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, first, 
I mean, help people understand the the way that the that the way that TV helps you. It helps you from visibility standpoint. It helps you from a credibility standpoint. You know, I, I there's so many people I can't tell you who come to me and they're like, oh, if I could just get on TV. Well, look, you can't put a sentence together. It's not going to work for you. You know, it's going to it's only going to help people understand how, you know, inarticulate you really are. In your case, how has TV helped you? How, how has it helped you in your practice? Um, you know, how has it helped you throughout the your entrepreneurial journey? No, so that's a good question, because I think that there's a lot of. Um romanticizing that goes on with the idea of being on TV. Um, from a business generation standpoint, I think people hear that you're on TV and they think that you're beating off people at your door that are like begging, that are like throwing money at you because they're so desperate to hire you to do their cases. Let me burst that kind of bubble, right? Misinformation bubble right there, misconception bubble. Um, one, uh, that doesn't happen. Two, the value add sometimes is not the immediate dollar value of, hey, Katie, take my case. It is the, hey, I recognize you from TV. You see, you 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 must be credible and know what the hell you're talking about if you're on television. Um, and so maybe that edges me out, edges me a little bit farther than my competition would be for similarly situated work. But let's let's be frank though right i appear on a network and i routinely although in two days i won't be talking as much well maybe i will be um you know i have a very kind of political leaning that i'm very vocal about right that can alienate certain people that may not subscribe to that particular leaning and so with the visibility from the tv and with the the the, the espousing espousing of my views some people may not want to work with me because i don't align with their political leanings, or maybe I don't sound like they want me to sound like. I mean, fundamentally though, the law is the law, thank God. Um, it is about as black and white as you can get within reason. Um, and so I'm hired to be able to articulate a position for a client and, and to strategically help a client, um, whatever that means for them. Um, but it's definitely not a situation where once you're on TV, you can retire. That is not the case. And TV is not that glam either. I did a hit at 6.10 yesterday morning. I woke up at 4.45 to do my own hair and makeup to sit in front of a ring light in my living room. Otherwise, I would have been up at 4. I'd be picked up at 5. And I would have been at the studio by 5.15. Somebody else would have done my hair and makeup, which I guess, you know, I, I would actually prefer one because I'm crappy at that and two because I'm helping with the economy. But then I would have sat in front of a camera and done a five minute hit and then turn around and come home and everybody's still sleeping. <laughs> and then I still have to do the laundry, take out the dog, clean the fish tank. Right. Right. So my point is, it's not as glam. But from a business development standpoint, I'm not going to bullshit anyone, though. It's great to have that visibility, though. I have a strong social media presence. I think that um, people, again, think, well, if she's on TV, then she must know what she's talking about. But I, obviously, I'll back it up with substantive knowledge and do a good job. But I do tell everybody, before you can kind of, you know, jump into the seat in front of a camera, you have to hone your craft. Like, you got to be good at what you do. Because if you're not, people can, re people can see through that in two seconds. And, and you don't you don't just go on and answer their questions off the top of your head. You do you actually do research on the cases that so you're for that five minute hit is going to take you an hour and a half's worth of research, and people don't realize that. That's non compensable, right? 
So I may get paid to do my TV appearances, but then let's also, you know, disabuse people of this other thing. If you if you book me to do a show and it gets canceled at the last minute, well, last minute I will get paid. But if you book me on Friday for a show on Sunday and you cancel me on a Saturday, I'm not getting paid. Mm -hmm. So I may have changed my plans. I may have done something a little different. So it's hard. I'm, I'm spending the time for which I'm not getting compensated to prepare for a five minute show, five minute hit. So that when you do ask me a question, I can say, Dave, that's a great question. Let me tell you, you know what the answer is. But how many clients are out there that need election law impeachment assistance right now? I can only think of maybe one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like the point is it depends on um, the, I guess, legal topic, whether or not maybe people say, hey, um, but also think about it, too. It, it, the only kind of real area of generation is going to be criminal law. And there's a whole, there's not a lot of one-offs on that. Mm -hmm. Cause if you got a lot of one-offs on that, I think you got some problems going on. Right. Sure. So, um, it's, it's kind of, you have to really think about whether or not, like you said, are you capable of doing it? Which I think a whole bunch of people are, maybe they underestimate themselves, but it's not going to be some door opening experience where you can retire off of what you're going to make. Right. If you if you if you had the choice between getting up in front of a, a room full of uh, corporate general counsel who may have issues in Miami and speaking to them or doing a you know, doing a five minute hit on a cable news channel, I'm assuming you'd pick get in front of the corporate general counsel because you could get a case from that tomorrow. Yeah. So and that's the thing. I'm a full time um, lawyer. That's what I do. Full time trial lawyer. Right. That's my job. Um, again, being other than being a wife and a mom and, and a daughter, that's my job. Um, the TV stuff is also my job before the pandemic was way more time consuming, is less so since the pandemic, but is about to amp up again as 2021 starting up. Mm -hmm. So but you're right, Dave, if I had to choose between those two, I do the former. Now, have I done both? Yeah. Like as in have I, um, you know, killed myself to get from point A to point B to race to do that thing and then try to get somewhere else and do whatever? Yeah, I have in a very unhealthy way. Right. Sure. So those have not been easy decisions either. Yeah. Um, the lack of travel, the lack of time to be able to spend with my family. I've, I've not gone on vacations because I've had to be around to cover major news events. It's hard. I've been on vacation and been in a studio more than with my family when on vacation. So let's talk, let's talk about how awful the practice of law is when it comes to diversity. Um, you know, I'm a white guy and I'm saying that it's bad. It is, it is really bad. I work with a ton of attorneys. I work with a half dozen at any given time between a half dozen and a dozen big firms. And every single one of them is awful at diversity. Why is the practice of law, business in general, but the practice of law, why is it so difficult for these firms to balance their leadership roles with people who are like the people in the community? Okay, so that's kind of the $64,000 question that everybody confronts themselves with, I think, no matter how large or small the firm is. But clearly, we look at larger firms because they have a better stronger impact, I think, on the community from a visibility standpoint, right? So part of it is just, I think, organically, because of the way that the law school graduate environment's been, or just law schools in general, 
it's only over the last few years you've seen more women going to law school. Um, and I think that that's, and also from a diversity standpoint, you've seen more um, diverse attendees and, and enrollees that are going to um, postgraduate school, right? And I think that's part of the reason why if you're a law firm and you don't have a lot to work with, I think in terms of the general beginning of trying to populate your employ your employees and et cetera, that's part of the problem. But then once you scratch that surface and you get a little bit more nuance in the way that you're looking at things, when you do have a diverse group of people with whom you can select to either be in positions on your executive committee, on your comp committee, um, things like that, your, your hiring and your recruitment committee, you know, it's got to be more than just lip service. There has to actually be some thoughtfulness that's put into it. And the idea of people being sincere about who they are resonates when you're dealing with outside counsel or excuse me, in-house counsel from firms that are looking for, uh, from companies, et cetera, that are looking for outside counsel. They know the difference between you parading a woman of color in front of them for purposes of, of getting the work versus actually putting that person on your trial team or putting that person on a matter. So I'm a small firm. I only have a few employees and we're building and we're getting much bigger. It's amazing though, how colorblind, genderblind you can be um, when you don't consider these things, when, when I'm looking for a new associate, a new paralegal, when I'm looking for new staff, I'm not looking at them to say, you know what, I really need to get a black woman right now to be able to put him in this job. Right. It's let me look at all the different people that are qualified to do this and let me pick from them and who's the right fit, right? It's amazing how well that synergy can be achieved if you kind of ironically put the blinders on and you don't consider trying to kind of fit or checkbox certain things, but you have to want to try and you have to want to do it. And it can't just be, again, lip service. I'm not sure why that thoughtfulness can't translate because it will, and it'll result in actual profit to a law firm. It's just really difficult for them to be able to embrace it. And part of that is also one of the reasons why I went out on my own years ago. It is still a very um, older white male culture. Um, in terms of the decision makers. And that's very hard to break into. And if you don't have a seat at the table because you don't have the ability to have a voice at that table, nobody's going to hear you when you're locked out of the room. What do you what do you do as a mom these days to uh, to expose your daughter to an environment where she's you know where that where that you know that colorblindness I guess I don't even know if that's a word is is just embedded in her personality you know and I, I tell people all the time I you know when I when I went to college I went to I first went to college thinking I was going to be a chef so I went to culinary school and that's a very diverse. Uh, environment. Then I went into hotel management. It's a very diverse profession. And I eventually gravitated toward uh, asset management and, you know, managing hotels and that sort of thing. And coming up along the way, executives that I were exposed to, there was always a very good, in the hospitality industry, there's always a very good mix of people with, from diverse personalities. In fact, if you work for, it used to be, if you work for a big hotel company, you'd be just as likely to sit on an executive committee with somebody from another country in your hotel in New York as you would, you know, sit sit on an executive committee with somebody from Indiana or somebody from your neighborhood. It's just the way the industry is. So I think that helped me 
in be, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white community, but that helped me kind of be exposed to things that most people aren't exposed to. So what do you do? And and I focus on my kids' development in the same way, right? That's why I live in Miami-Dade County and I don't live in Broward County or Palm Beach County because the diversity makes for a richer experience and it was a conscious choice my wife and I made when we moved here. What do you do to make sure that Charlie grows up in an environment where, you know, her friends are who her friends are and it looks like, you know, a box of Skittles. How do you make sure that happens? So um, we weren't those very thoughtful parents, like in terms of finding a place to live because we're looking for the good schools. I'm so embarrassed if this, right? But it's true. Like we weren't like, we got to live in this neighborhood because we have to go to this school. We were just looking for a place to live at the time. Um, and we ended up moving from Miami Beach to Miami Shores. And we've since left Miami Shores. We've since uh, sold our place in Miami Shores. But Charlie was going to a private school um, from age like 18, 20 months until this past year. And now she goes to public school. I am a public school kid. I went kindergarten through high school and then I went to undergrad, which was private. But other than that, I'm a public school kid. My my husband was for a brief period of time, private school, because he went to like a Jewish day school that was private, but then otherwise, and he's from Chicago. Otherwise he was in public school as well. Public school is a really important component of educating our daughter because she goes to school in kindergarten with kids that don't have food at home. And I get up every morning and you can say I spoil my kid and I'll unabashedly tell you in some extent I do. I'm, I literally, she likes pasta. So like I'll cook her fresh pasta in the morning so she can have some for her lunch. There's some kids that actually go to school to have food. So we've taught her um, even before now about the importance of money and what it can do and, and how important it is to work hard though so that you can do things. But simultaneously, you have to do stuff with your money. Like you have to be generous with your money as well. For Charlotte, we think it's really important though that at her private school, she was the one of only maybe three Asian kids, which I thought was a lot. But now she plays with kids that are Hispanic. There are kids that are black. There are kids that you know are from um, even, you know, you drill down even farther. They're from like a specific country, like in South America or a specific country from Central America. You can't just blanket, just say that they're mm-hmm. Hispanic or whatever. That's important to us. Um, and we've never pointed to people and maybe highlighted like their skin color being different. But recently, just maybe over Christmas, she's chatting away with me and my mom. And she's, she said something to my mom and then she took her fingers and she did the slanty eye thing. Yeah. Yeah. See your reaction, right? And my mother was stunned and she dragged me into the room and she goes, Charlotte, show show your mom what you just did. And she repeated it. Charlotte had no idea what it meant. Mm. Like she didn't know that there was a negative connotation to doing it. So I, of course, like went to like DEFCON 1 way too fast. (laughs) I got really upset. And I think that it spooked her because I got so upset. But when I finally calmed down and I spoke to her, she said that she actually had somebody had done that. A couple of kids had done it to her in her Sunday school class. (laughs) So putting aside, you won't expect anything bad happening at Sunday school. Um, I tried to explain to her. I said, Charlotte, you know, I'm Korean, your Nana is Korean, your Papa Michael, who she loved, my dad, you know, was Korean. 
it's a really important thing. And when you're Asian and you look a little different and your eyes are looking a little different, that can be really mean to other people if you do something like that. So I say we got to be really careful that we don't say things or do things that are going to hurt other people, right? Um, but it's it's upsetting to me because, of course, I wanted to, like, kick everyone's ass when it happened. Mm. Yeah. So no, I, had to be really I, I about how to. I had to be really careful about how to define my reaction because I want her to know that it's not a good thing to do and it's not a nice thing for someone. And we've taught her to defend herself and to stand up for herself. And so she has a lot of chutzpah. Like, she will totally defend herself. She is no wallflower. But it's amazing, though, that she repeated a gesture not knowing that it was negative she now knows it's negative because we explained it to her. But, this, but the, I guess, but my point is, it, it's it's the way that you're educating your kids in terms of what the value is to an act, uh, you know, is the way to do it. Um, and so we don't malign people. We may get angry, we may say it, but we're not obviously focusing on something. But we do tell her a lot that she is partially Korean. And because I want her to embrace it more than I did. I grew up only wanting to be white. Mm. I was always the only Asian kid anywhere when I was growing up. And it was really hard for me. So I didn't want to be Korean. I want my daughter to know what that means. And so when she just did her little culture shield for her class where she had to draw certain things, she drew kimchi. She drew a hanbok, which is the traditional Korean dress. Um, and she drew the Korean flag. I didn't force her to do it. She wanted it to do it. So I felt like maybe there's a little bit of me that's doing pretty well with her. Sure. Um, but it's, but you grow up in Miami. Listen, I didn't hear the word. I didn't hear a racial slur. So I moved to Miami when I was eight and somebody called me a chink. And I went home and I told my mom and she was appalled. Mm. And she's like, who said that? I said, somebody at school. I didn't know it was a bad thing. Mm. It's, it's, and I went to, like I said, a public school down here. You just kind of have to, you know, go with the flow and teach your kids what's wrong and what's right. But we do tell her she has to defend her friends and stand up for them, no matter what they look like, who they are. Like, I'm like, you have to always defend your friends, defend, defend people, people that are smaller than you. Make sure that you take care of them is what we tell her. You know, one of the things you just highlighted there. Uh, you know, we're talking about it as it relates to kids now, but it applies to adults too. I think inclusiveness, diversity, especially in the workplace, it's not one big moment, right? There's no, there's no Atticus Finch moment where all of a sudden you realize, oh, geez, I need to, I need to work on this because we're all part of the same community. It's a million little moments. That's yeah. what, those are the building blocks of diversity. I have a, you know, kind of a similar story. We, we put our kids in a bilingual school. My, my son, when he was uh, in pre-K, went to a, he went to a Montessori school in Little Haiti, and his mm -hmm. best friend was Haitian. Um, he didn't, he didn't know, he didn't think anything different, uh, you know, the, the fact that the color of their skin was different. Uh, we put him in a bilingual school because uh, my wife is Ecuadorian and Cuban and we speak Spanish as much as we can around the house. My, my mother-in-law speaks to them exclusively in Spanish. So our focus is on helping them not only embrace their heritage, but realize how important it is to understand their, their background. And, you know, we tell them that, uh, that, you know, being Latin and, and being able to speak Spanish is like a superpower. It doesn't seem like that here in Miami, but if you go anywhere else, it really is a big deal. And so my, my son, you know, fast forward to when my son is, uh, eight years old, nine years old, and he's in a, he's in the finals of a mixed martial arts tournament. 
And for the first time, he has to fight, and it's, you know, literally a fight, an African-American kid who's bigger than he is. And we're getting ready for the fight, and he's like, I can't do this. This kid's going to kill me. And I said, this kid, is he's at the same level as you. He's the same age as you. He's the same weight as you. What is the difference? And in my son's mind, because the color of his skin was different and because he had seen other people whose skin color was that way be great athletes, his perception was that this person is going to be a, is going to be better at me than this and it's exclusively based on the color of his skin. And my kid is smart enough where and he's and he's rational enough where when I said to him, "Is it because he's black?" and he mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, dad, that's it." And I said, "Well, what do you, what do we call people who make judgments about other people based on the color of their skin?" He's like, "Dad, you're not telling me I'm a racist. You know I'm not a racist." I'm like, "What is the judgment you just made?" I said, "If you want to live the way you've always lived your life, you have to approach this the way you approach everything else. And the color of this person's skin says nothing about their ability. It's their training. It's their dedication. If you lose to this person, you're going to lose because they worked harder, they know more technique, and they apply it better in the ring. That's why, it, but you still have equally as much a chance, whether, uh, whether you know this person is black or white, you have the same chance of winning. And, you know, in that moment, you know, that sticks out to me because there are a million moments like that that we face in the workplace every day. And we don't catch ourselves making those decisions. And the more often we can catch ourselves thinking that way, I think we have the opportunity to make an adjustment. And that's how we can improve. What are your thoughts? Well, I would agree. I mean, so a a couple of thoughts. One, um, speaking from just a race standpoint, I I speak, I'm coming from a position of privilege in that being Asian is not, um, is, is not as hard as if I were black. Right. Um, and we've had our own share of anti-Asian sentiment during the pandemic for the coronavirus, et cetera. And listen, I've heard plenty growing up that's been not particularly pleasant, but we have a little bit of a luxury because the stereotype of an Asian is that we're quiet and we're hardworking, right? And so it's so the bias, I think, implicit or otherwise, um, against or or regarding Asians, it's not like it is if we were black. Um, so I think that I speak from a place of privilege that I'm able to to you know live my life as somebody that is as Korean American. Number two, though. Gender challenges are particularly difficult, though, especially in in our profession, because even though there may be a lot of women in law school and a lot of female graduates and a lot of female lawyers now out there, um, we're still behind the eight ball when it comes to being viewed as being competent, um, to be the bet the company litigator, to be the head trial lawyer on a team, et cetera, because we're just women. Um, we're always the court reporter, the paralegal, the legal secretary, um, the JA, whatever, right? And so I think it's actually, for me personally, it's always been more difficult from a gender perspective than it has from a race perspective. Um, but I'm definitely not a, I, I, I embrace the stereotype of being a hardworking Asian, but I'm definitely not quiet. I'm definitely not um, one to keep my mouth shut in any perceived injustice to myself or to other people. And so what I've tried to do is 
I think that I've tried to make sure that no matter where I've gone in my career, whether it's in public service as a government employee, which was definitely so much, um, so, so much, such a better place, Dave, in terms of being gender blind and colorblind. It's amazing. We made the least amount of money. We worked so damn hard, but it was so diverse. So diverse. My class that I started with in 2000 at the state attorney's office here in Miami, we were women and we were black and we were Asian and we were Hispanic and we were white and we were, I mean, it was just amazing. And we were straight and gay and everything. I mean, it was just an amazing, cool kind of, you know, microcosm um, of just the entire world, like all in this one little place. But when I left and I went into civil litigation, private practice, it got very white, very fast. Mm. And I got very male, very fast. So we have to make this conscious decision that we need to be both conscious and not conscious of what we're doing. We have to be, we have to make it so ingrained that anything that made us implicitly biased, we turn, turn the narrative to being in a better way, right? So that we aren't even giving it thought because there is a certain artificiality when you're making these decisions because you're trying, like I said, to check a box or make sure that you're achieving a certain level of diversity or inclusion. It really shouldn't be that thought provoking. It should just be an inherent natural organic thing. I don't know how we get there. I think you have to make that conscious effort to get to a point where it's done unconsciously so that you're not actually feeling like you're forcing it to be. It's just something that happens to occur. But you have to rip the bandaid off and you have to have hard conversations. But people are scared to have hard conversations. Well, I think I think they don't know how to start. Right. They don't know how to start the conversation. Right. So, yeah, I mean, people are afraid to to, you know, go up to go up to their colleague at work and say, what's it like being black? I mean, I've never, I've never had, I'm, you know, I'm a very direct person and I've never had anybody punch me in the mouth for saying, tell me, tell me what your day is like. Tell me how you, you know, tell me how, tell me about your experience in uh, being a person of color working in an environment that is mostly white. When you do that, you'll find that you always learn something new. And I think that, I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many opportunities firms that I've worked with that are uh, diverse, how many opportunities they get that predominantly white firms don't get. And it's not because of the color of their skin. It's not because of their religion. It's not, uh, it's not because they, they value women more. It's not because they're, you know, they, they embrace L the LGBTQ community. It's because of the way they present themselves to the world and the way the world views them, right? If you have a firm and you're, you know, and two of your partners out of five are, you know, members of a, of a diverse group, and you go to an event and they say, oh, who's your partner? And you, and you point it out. It's, it's almost like you represent the community, right? You do, you do, criminal, uh, you do criminal defense work. How many times are you going to pick an all-white jury? I mean, what is the likelihood of somebody getting an all-white jury? It's, it's highly, it, depending on the community, it's, it, you know, most communities, especially uh, communities that are urban, it's highly unlikely that you're going to get an all-white jury, yet you got an all-white team working on the case. Do you think there'd be some perspective in bringing in someone who looks like the community that this person is going to have to face? 
Yeah, and that's what goes back to the idea of like doing the dog and pony and only putting like a woman of color maybe on your pitch team because you want to be able to sell it to me, like because I'm in house and I happen to be Asian and you know Asian and female. So you think, oh, if I put a woman of color on that pitch team, I'm going to be more inclined to do it. That's not true, um, and, and, and it's and it's and it's so obvious sometimes. It's so patently obvious what you're trying to do. It's actually so disingenuous. It's kind of a turnoff. I, I think what's important is this when. I was I was in New York doing a show and there was a, a woman who's from New York. And of course, in New York, talk about diversity, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it's like you could you know walk like a foot and, and encounter so many different diverse people. She's um, Vietnamese and she works for a, um, a company out of New York. And she told me, she goes, um, can I take a picture with you? And I said, uh, why would you want to take a picture with me? She's like, she's like no she's like i she was i'm a big fan and i want to take a picture with you i said fine so we, we took a picture and she's like let me tell you something she's like my daughter is going to be so excited and i said why she goes because my daughter knows who she who you are and my daughter thinks it's cool that there's somebody who looks like her that's on television that's, that's on great. national television yep. so so think about where we are now too we have inauguration in a couple of days with a vice president who's a woman mm -hmm. who happens to be african-american with jamaica her her Indian American. And although there's some big, you know, debate over whether we want to say she's African American or whatever, the bottom line is this, she's a woman of color mm -hmm. who's our vice president. And it's that type of idea that translates into private industry too. If you've got lawyers and, and, and people that are on C-suite level type teams that look more like what our community looks like, it's going to be an easier sell. It's going to be much, I think, more profitable for people to be able to to work and live in communities and to thrive together um, profitably and professionally if if everybody kind of looks more like what the community looks like. Well, and, you know, let's let's end with this. Think about this for a minute. I, I want to get I want to get your opinion on this for uh, for years in 2000. So to, in 2008. Uh, my wife was pregnant with my son. We, uh, at 4.15 in the morning, we were living in Aventura at the time. It's a city in Northeast Miami-Dade County. Um, we went to the, we went to the government center where, which was our polling place, 4.15 in the morning, early voting, like the first day of early voting. We brought folding chairs, my eight-month pregnant wife and I sitting to be the first people to, uh, to vote for Barack Obama in the 2008 election. And, you know, I pride myself on doing everything I can to, uh, to, you know, get to know and understand people. We voted, the election happens, and uh, we felt great. Uh, you know, I'm a white guy. I felt great about myself. My, my, uh, my wife is uh, Latina. She felt great about herself. She felt great about the country. We were proud that we had elected the first, you know, person of color to be president of the United States. And for four years, I'm speaking for myself now, for four years, I deluded myself into thinking that things were better, right? I, I, I really thought that we had come so far. Then, you know, putting things in perspective, the last four years that we've been through highlighted the fact that half of the people that live in this country, at least half of the people that live in this country, think, feel the exact opposite way that I felt. And a challenge that we face in the business world is those people are our coworkers, right? Those people are serving our clients. Those people could be our clients. 
So we have to find a way to, I'm not going to say find common ground because from a racial standpoint, that may be too tough. We just have to find a way to have a common dialogue with them so that we, I, we shouldn't, I should not be surprised. I should know that this is there and I should know that I have to make an effort to try and, to try and you know, make things better. The fact that I didn't, I look at it as the problem that, that I see from a, from a diversity perspective is I, I went for four years thinking, oh, everything's going to be great. This is terrific. We overcame this. I couldn't have been more wrong. What do you think? I think it's very kind of fitting that um, we're having this conversation on Martin Luther King Day, <laughs> right? Um, timing couldn't have been any better, I think, too. So... It's, that's a really tough question, Dave, because I think that a very thin veneer has been ripped off um, for a big part of American society and has shown that there is a kind of fake kind of politeness and civility that's existed for a number of years that's disturbing and kind of just really depressing. If you think about, like you said, the number of people that have um, come forward to support someone um, that is not a reflection of what I think are American values and American ideals. Uh, I agree. It, it, it may be too much of a chasm to have to try to, you know, cross to, to find common ground, but the common dialogue idea is keen. It's just, we need to be very blunt though about um, whether there's a certain price to be paid for either representing a certain person you know, as lawyers, we've been kind of dragged into the spotlight lately with a lot of questions of, would you represent blank? Law firms have come under a lot of scrutiny for the work they've done for certain people or certain organizations. Do we now kind of have a less polite conversation about what that cost is? Um, opportunity cost, literal cost? If we do work, and again, I'll speak from a legal perspective, mm -hmm. perspective, legal professional perspective, if we do work for those people or those organizations, is there a value that is, is, is gained by saying no? And if you say no, does that then send a message about who you are as a law firm or a lawyer and who you are? And then does that mean that other people will look to you and I'll say, you know what? That took balls because that actually took dollars off a table for you but you did that because it meant something to you because you didn't want to represent somebody who stood for those particular concepts. I think those are the kinds of conversations. That's the type of dialogue that needs to be had. I think we're seeing more of it happening, but I am disheartened that um, the, the, the things that have happened as of late, there's really hard things to swallow because they're scary. But I think that when we are in a, in a time when people are scared, sometimes it's worth it to have the honest conversations about why are we scared and what's it going to take for us not to be scared? What's it going to take for us to live comfortably and safely together? And like you said, maybe it's worth just having a conversation with someone who doesn't look like you and ask them, how are you doing? And what's making it hard for you to see if you can make it better? You know, it's uh, I, I think it, when you... When, until it hits home, until it hits close to home, I think it takes, it, it, it's, it's, it just doesn't seem real to people. You know, I, I remember, I mean, there, there've been, there've been probably a handful of things in, in my life and my career that have, that have brought this to the forefront for me. 
one of the one of the more recent ones was a, a couple of years ago. You remember uh, the, issue, the the tragedy in El Paso with uh, with the shooting and everything. A week yeah. after that, I'm on vacation with my family and uh, we're at the beach and it rains. So uh, my wife says, why don't you stay home and get some work done for a couple hours? I'm going to take the kids to the movies. And they're in the movies. They're in a dark movie theater and they stop the they stop the movie and somebody goes to the front of the theater and says, uh, we'd like you all to move this way. We, we, there's a, a report of someone in the lobby with a long gun. Okay. And this is, this is here in Florida. So it's not unusual for people to be walking around with guns, but you know, you don't bring a gun yeah. into a movie theater unless, unless you've, you've got some kind of an issue. So, um, my, the, the, they, they put everybody, there was like 25, 30 people in the, in the theater, they put them in a storeroom. So it's my wife and my kids. And if you've ever seen my kids, my kids are, my kids are as white as alabaster. My kids, you know, my kids look like they could be from Norway and my wife has mocha color skin. And so my wife texts me and she says, I never thought I would be um, at risk in my own country because of the, because of the color of my skin. She said, I'm putting the kids in one corner and I'm moving to another corner just in case this guy gets in here. And I tell that story to people who know us and people who are, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't work with clients. Maybe they, you know, maybe they have a comfortable job in an office somewhere and they're not as, they don't have to be as racially sensitive in their job as, you know, as people who are public facing. I tell them that story and it hits them in such a profound way because maybe they never thought of my wife as, as being any different, right? Maybe they never thought of Carrie as being any different or, Maybe they, they can't imagine having themselves to make a choice to put your kids in one corner of the room and you go to the other corner of the room because you may get shot because of the color of your skin and you don't want your kids to be near you because you don't want them to be shot just for being associated with you. And to me, you know, when you have that kind of an experience um, in your life as somebody who is not a group that would have been identified in that way, it really hits home for you. Now, I don't wish that kind of an experience on other people, but I think if we have conversations and somebody, a person of color told me that story, it would have the same type of impact on me that me telling uh, folks the, the, uh, the story of what my wife went through has on them. So, I think dialogue can can only help, and it, it can't hurt as long as it's uh, as long as it comes from a place of goodwill. Yeah, absolutely. And I think again, getting back to the idea of sincerity, um, genuineness, right? Mm -hmm. People see through that um, very quickly if you're not being those things. And I think if we're um, asking honest, asking hard questions, and expecting honest answers, and we accept them um, and embrace them and there's a transparency behind why we're asking these questions and why we want to learn, that's the next step in trying to find that um, common dialogue and then the common ground that you're talking about. So Katie, what are you, what are you involved with in the community now? How can, uh, how can, how can we help you in what you're doing out in the, out in the community these days? What's important to you? Well, you know, I think that that's a, it's, everything's kind of been put on the proverbial back burner because of the pandemic. I think we're all looking forward to 2021 there is something that's lost in our legal profession when you're not able to meet people. There was a lot of very kind of cool networking and kind of camaraderie vibe that was going on when we would do association, you know, meetings and, and events, even just seminars, right? Just mm -hmm. being able to go pop into a CLE, that's changed now. So I think that we all now have a more heightened appreciation for the value of touch 
the idea of me able to see you and give you a hug and say, how are you doing? How's your family doing? I feel like there's more of a real import to that inquiry now than before. So 2201 for me, um, I've decided I'm, I, I kind of took a little bit of a forced hiatus because of the pandemic last year, but also even in 2019 before the pandemic, partially because of my father, I had kind of like put things on the chiller in terms of, you know, being more active. I've decided 2021 is going to be a very kind of concentrated focus on certain type of organizations and community-based things. I do think, though, I'm probably going to be a little bit more politically involved than I've been in a long time. And part of that is because I want to kind of keep on pushing Florida towards a better future. So I may be doing things a little bit more in politics, not running myself, mm -hmm. but maybe some things behind the scenes. But I'll continue to practice law, do my TV and try to, you know, use my social media and my visibility for as a force of good and just kind of find things that mean a lot to me. I'm getting old, right? I'm getting older. And so the time is fleeting. So I want uh, to you've never, you've me. never been better. You've never been better. Come on. The secret of the Orient. <laughs> it's my good. Where, uh, where can people find more from you? What's the, what's the best way for people to, uh, to find out more about you and what you're doing? Well, we're actually, um, revamping the website as I speak, but my website is www.katiefangphang.com. I'm also very active on social media, like I talked about, but my public social media is Twitter, which is my handle is at Katie Fang. Um, and, you know, the website allows people to email questions and things. I think you just saw my daughter just running behind me. Uh, so I'm always happy to field questions and to, to have some outreach. So always happy to hear from people. But this was really special. Thank you for letting me start my week off with this. Uh, it was special having you. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today was Katie Fang. If you want to find out more about her, go to katiefang.com. Her Twitter is at Katie Fang. I will put it in the show notes for you so that you can all follow her on Twitter. Uh, used to be the president of the United States would occasionally tweet an insult at her, but uh, that's over now. Thank goodness. So thanks for joining us today, Katie. It's been a real honor. Those of you who are with us, we appreciate you being here so much. If you have any questions, please send them to me at askdave at dlorenzo.com. A-S-K-D-A-V-E at dlorenzo.com. Until tomorrow, we'll see you right back here on the inside.